and then like obviously the weight room has a role um how much I think we don't know sometimes <laughs> Especially like the further you get away from the ball. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Cheeky Midweeky, where we are making strength and conditioning interesting and not boring because, frankly, there's too many boring-ass conversations out there. So today we have a college football playoff finalist team last year, all right, TCU football, Ryan Jackson. And we're going to talk training, nutrition, speed, all things college football. And uh, Ryan, go ahead and introduce yourself. And thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be on the show. Yep, absolutely. I appreciate you having me on here. Um, so yeah, my, my name is Ryan Jackson, um, born and raised in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, I used to think that I had like a normal childhood growing up. Um, <laughs> but it, it was, there were some weird things that I didn't really appreciate until now. Uh, my dad was an electrical engineer. My mom was my grade school librarian. So they were both nerds. I'm a nerd. They're both weird. I'm weird. We had these weird rules growing up where, number one, we never had cable. And number two, in the summertime, you couldn't watch TV. Oh, wow. So I could do nothing but play outside. And when it rained and stuff, I had to go inside and we had a bunch of books and I just started gravitating towards the books about animals, about science. So I love, I fell in love with science and, and sport, which was playing at the time. Um, my dad always wanted me to become a doctor and get a PhD. I did not do that, but I went to school long enough to do that. So <laughs> I, uh, I got a bachelor's degree in like exercise phys. I got, and during that time I was volunteering in the weight room for Pat Ivy at Mizzou um, and a lot of other, like it's kind of unbelievable, some of the people I got to work with there. Um, got hired as a GA, did my master's. While I was doing the, my master's, I realized how competitive strength conditioning was. And I wasn't a student athlete, um, so I always felt like I was kind of like a walk-on in this. Like I had to find an edge or something. And with the way that my coursework was in undergrad, it was exercise, phys, and nutrition. I had done a lot of the courses for dietetics. And as I was getting going, I'm like, my master's is paid for. I might as well take whatever else I need to, to be able to apply to the dietetics program. And if I can't find a full-time strength conditioning job, I'll go to dietetic school to become a registered dietitian. You know, fast forward, I applied, I got in, and we had a culture at Mizzou of continuing education. So you have, I shared an office with Brian Mann when I was a GA. Everyone knows Dr. Brian Mann now, uh, but he was able to get his PhD there at the time. Pat Ivey got his PhD in sports psych at the time while I was there. Mm. Jana Heitmeyer was a strength coach and went to dietetic school like I did. Yeah, Andrew Paul, who's the head performance coach for the Oklahoma City Thunder. He went to physical therapy school, which that was like the craziest thing that anyone did and worked <laughs> full time. Um, so you just had like a good culture of that. And as I got close to it, I got into the dietetics program. I went to Pat Ivy and I was like, hey, can I, would you extend my graduate assistantship to cover this two years of dietetics school? And he said, yes which like no other strength coach in the nation 
would have done that because that entailed me being gone all the time. Like clinical rotations. I was working in a hospital like for 40 hours a week. And so I was dipping out all the time. Um, during that time, I actually, I did that for, I was like one and a half more years as a GA. So like three and a half years total. Um, I did get promoted to a full-time spot. So I did that. Um, I was full-time at Mizzou for a couple of years. And then we had a coaching transition where some of us got let go. I went to the university of Tulsa for two years, uh, worked with men's soccer, volleyball, assisted with football, um, filled in for nutrition when our, um, director of nutrition, she, uh, had a, had a baby, so while she was on leave, I filled in for a role there. From there, Pat Ivey hired me back to work for him at Arkansas State. That was like my first true dual role, where I was the sports dietitian for the football team, and I was also like Pat Ivey's uh, first assistant. From there, Coach Cos hired me at SMU to do a dual role, um, strength coach, sports dietitian. From there, Chris Dawson, called me out of the blue and never talked to the man in my life. He pretty much offered me a job at UCF as their director of uh, performance nutrition. So that was a non-coaching role. Um, and then I did that for like eight months. And then Coach Dykes got the job at TCU, which meant Cos went to TCU, which meant he got to hire me back to do everything I've ever wanted, which is a true dual role in that I'm the team's sports dietitian and I'm his first assistant, and I don't have to do a bunch of operation stuff nutritionally. It's solely nutrition, education, supplementation, mm. education, those things. So that's that's awesome. That's awesome. And for me, being in the world of football and any of our other listeners out there, because there's tons of y'all, like you understand how important that is because you see the guys all the time, right? Like, how often there's supposed to be a nutritionist that doesn't be around them and just how important that is. Like talk about how you've been able to learn these things from that, you know, Arkansas state dual role, uh, SMU, like how have you been able to take your knowledge and then use it in that practical setting for relationships with the guys? Yeah. I mean, this, this is something we talk to recruits about all the time and this isn't, this isn't an ego thing. It's just telling the truth. I, I'm the only person in college football that does my job. Really? There's no other sports dietitian who's also one of the full-time strength coaches. There's a lot of dietitians who might have their CSCS, but they're not actually coaching and they're not actually training themselves. Um, and I, I might ruffle some feathers saying this, but I, I feel like strength coaches know more about nutrition than dietitians know about training. I'd agree with you. 100%. And so like, and this is what I did. Like, I guess this could be a good answer to your question. Like when I went, got to UCF, all I ever knew was to be a strength coach. So when I got to that role and I was able to hire uh, an amazing assistant, Erica Underhill, who got promoted to the director role when I left, I told her we work the same hours as the strength staff. I said, you're not going to come in at seven o'clock and make smoothies for the guys and try to talk to them about the importance of carbs. If you weren't there 
at 6 a.m. or whatever time they started watching them train hard because you're not gonna get the buy-in, right? You get more buy-in when you're present, when they see you there, when they know that you know like what they're going through training-wise. I mean, like that's the biggest thing. And, and on top of that, like training yourself. So I'll go back to what I said about the difference between strength coaches and, and dietitians, and a lot of that can come back to supplementation. Like a lot of dietitians are this food first mantra. <laughs> Um, and they're like, worry about diet. And then maybe in a couple years you can take creatine, but it's like, well, creatine has been conclusively proven to work independent of diet and football and any sport is not normal. So there's some supplements that you should be taking. Um, and you would know those supplements would work if you've truly trained yourself. What has been, let's dive into that because I was going to ask you about micros and macros. I was taking notes here. What are some of the things that the average strength and conditioning coach doesn't know about micros or macros with their team, whether or not they do blood profiling or whatever? Um, that's tough. Uh, I think, I think a lot of strength coaches have a good handle of it. Um, you know, like mac macronutrient wise, um, I would say it's it's really important to emphasize carbohydrates and protein, um, especially as a strength coach. Like sometimes we get wrapped up in the um, what's it called, the interference effect, like when aerobic training might diminish gains from uh, lifting, right? Mm -hmm. What is that? Is it the trans I'm, 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 got a right. transfer of training or diminishing return? I mean, either way, like there's going to be a little bit of that once you start playing the sport of football anyways. Like you don't have right. all of your type 2B fibers and whatnot. So I see what you're saying. Yeah, but like it's it's like the, the deal where like aerobic conditioning can impact your, your um, adaptations. Like it's competing adaptations. But if you look at the research on that stuff, like one of the most simple ways to mitigate that is just to have carbohydrates and protein because those adaptations become competing when you have low fuel availability. That's when AMPK kicks on and that's when you start, you know, AMPK flips on, then mTOR turns off. But if you're just sufficiently fueled, you have glycogen in your muscles and you're eating protein, you're, you're, you're turning both those on. How do you go about <clears throat> in your, in your opinion and what you guys do again, without giving away any secrets or talking about things that you guys do, but what's the best way that our listeners out there can be able to provide protein or carbohydrates to their athletes? Is it giving them a shake? Have you found that athlete, you know, Perry workout training it? Like what's the best thing that you've kind of found? Um, or is it, you're like, Hey, you know what, man, there's, there is none. Cause it's all dependent on the guys. Uh, I would say, uh, make nutrition mandatory. That is a fantastic point that you mentioned because my former assistant, Kyle Hashimoto, shout out to Moto. He was like, bro, how good would the team be at lifting if they weren't required to be there or practice? 
He's like, that's essentially what happens with nutrition. And we had our nutritionists show up to talk to them. And I know we couldn't make nutrition mandatory because that's the rest of the day that they're not with us and blah, blah, blah. But we scheduled nutrition time for nutrition talks and made it a priority. Like, how do you make, how do you make nutrition mandatory? You have to have food available. So you set up, you set up your environment in that. Um, nutrition is the first thing they see. Our first thing that our guys see when they get into the weight room is they have their vitamins, they have their omegas, and we have a, a cart full of training carbs is what we call them. So some people would call those simple carbs, high GI, GI carbs or whatever. Um, but it's mandatory that you eat something. You eat, you eat a training carb. Um, and then you get your body weight and then, then you get rolling. And then I would say on, on top of that, um, we'll do a bit like sometimes protein doesn't sit well in your stomach to eat before training, mm-hmm. but while the guys are lifting, we'll have breaks where, especially like our skill guys that need to gain weight, coach bolt will put in a break in the template where they all have to go over and get a protein shake and they can drink that while they train. Um, we encourage guys to eat while they train. Um, and then on top of that, all our meals are mandatory. Guys looking like a powerlifting meet there just in the middle of like in between oh, yeah. sets of squats or just like fucking chowing down on something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, one of the questions that I wrote down here as you were talking was within your role, this has got to also just be something that's fantastic for them and things that you just get to – because you're in the meetings on the training phase, how <clears> – <throat> how do people get it wrong and how should people pair nutrition within the phases of training? And I'm talking specifically like you guys just posted some stuff the other day about eccentric overload training and that increased, you know, demand on the body. So how are you rotating, um, within the caloric demands and within, okay, high eccentric force, we're going to be doing, you know, let's, let's offer them collagen here. How do you just go about, presenting and putting the food that they need at the right times dependent upon the training and when it comes to training camp and just all the different times of the year yeah so we'll we'll periodize nutrition a little bit um from like a macro standpoint that stays pretty constant you eat training carbs as soon as you walk in the door before Mm -hmm. you train um you have protein available we have smoothies available like intra-training and post-training. Um, I guess the one thing I would say that we do a little bit differently throughout the year is going to be our supplementation. So year-round, we'll do um, vitamins, um, omega-3s. They have a drawer with their omega-3s they take every single day. Um, but when we get to fall camp, like roll out all everything that we can um so right now in our fridges we don't have any cherry juice but as soon as we hit fall camp we're shoving cherry juice at them like every place that they turn as soon as they get off (laughs) the field for practice we're yelling cherry juice we make cherry juice jello shots like with collagen and cherry juice Um, on top of that we'll start using curcumin Yep. In addition to their omega-3s, they'll take curcumin, 
and then with a small population, uh, we'll utilize SPMs. Um, and SPMs are like a super fancy, expensive fish oil um, whose limited data right now on athletes, but they have been used effectively at like inflammation resolution. Hmm. So problem with ibuprofen and mega dosing antioxidants is that it blunts inflammation, right? Mm -hmm. And that keeps the body not to adapt on its own. The SPMs in theory are supposed to kick on as that inflammation curve kind of dips down. I don't, I don't know if I explained that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Like you said, it's okay. The we're at the height of it. Now the inflammation phase is kind of, coming to a, to a halt is no longer more. And now, now having that anti-inflammatory is not going to blunt the inflammation stage that you need for the adaptation. Right. Like, right. Which is exactly why people will say, Hey, don't take NSAIDs cause it's going to blunt the adaptations that you're actually trying to get. Right. Exactly. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. And then also we'll, we'll up the vitamin C a little bit in, in, in season and training camp. We do like liquid vitamins, um, and we'll put a little bit more vitamin C in there. Same, same concept. You know, we, we, we have research that shows like mega dosing vitamin C, um, and antioxidants is same thing as NSAIDs, blunting inflammation. Um, collagen is something that we use year round. Um, and I guess the other thing, like there's some other supplements that the guys will take um, with our supervision, like creatine and, and that stuff. <clears throat> For the strength coaches that are listening to you now, and they're like, man, this sounds super cool. He's got a niche. He's, he's doing something that I think are really cool. I think you and Will Greenberg are doing something pretty similar from my conversations with him up at Buffalo. Um, what would be the path to learn good nutrition information that is no nonsense that can allow you to do these things. Like what would you recommend to strength coaches listening out there? Like, all right, this is how you do what I did and kind of skip some of the bullshit. But also if you need the bullshit, tell them about the bullshit. Like, I mean, I mean, if you really want to do the real deal, you need to be a dietitian. Um, how do you do that? Cause I don't know how to do that. So you have to get a degree in dietetics um, and then from there, one of the things I was really fortunate of, and like, this is, I sound like, I don't know what the right word is to like, because no one else would have been given this opportunity that I had to get, be, have my school paid for as a GA in the weight room with Pat Ivy, um, and work on a dietetics degree. You know, normally as a GA, you do wherever the easiest degree is. So like, I was so fortunate and lucky for mm -hmm. that. Um, but and the other thing that made it unbelievably, I was unbelievably fortunate was there's two types of dietetics programs. There is a normal dietetics program, and then you have to apply for an internship. And there's only so many internship spots like throughout America to get your like clinical work in your supervised clinical practice. Or there's a very few amount of schools. I think it's still like 20 or less that are coordinated. Mizzou was coordinated. 
So I was literally able to just do it all at the same time. You're going to class a little bit, and then the further along you get, there's less classwork and there's more just supervised clinical experience. So like, it, it, yeah, if you want to do the full tilt, the whole thing, become a dietitian. Uh, that's a lot easier said than done. And then from, <laughs> from there, you have to pass a, an exam, which is, is pretty difficult in my opinion, where you're, cause a lot of it's going to be way outside of what you're doing in a weight room. Like you have to know, uh, medical nutrition therapy. That's one of the domains, food service and management. Those are other domains. Um, community nutrition. That's another domain. That's like knowledge of WIC and you know, stuff like that. Um, but the one certification I would recommend if you're not going to go the, the full dietetics route would be uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's Flex Diet. Flex Diet. Never heard of that. Flex Diet Certified. Um, I mean, I, I took that after I became a dietitian, and I stole a bunch of stuff from that. Really? Uh, it, it's funny. It utilizes motivational interviewing, which when I was in dietetic school, I thought I was too good for, you know, this stuff in dietetic school. Like I'm better than this. Um, and they always talked about motivational interviewing. I'm like, Oh, this is stupid, but it's basically a way of assessing, um, people's willingness to change. Okay. And giving them like protein is a good example for like his protein section. Instead of just telling an athlete to track their macros and eat a hundred and 85 grams of protein, you give them five different ways they could eat more protein if that's what you identify they need to get better at. And they select the one that they're most willing to do, which could be eat protein, you know, eat two palms of protein at every single meal, four times, a, uh, you know, if they like math or whatever, then they might like the macro tracking. Um, add protein in before you go to bed. If they're getting like protein three times, you know, instill a habit, do it with something that you already do. So you go to bed every single night, you brush your teeth, have a protein shake before you go to bed. Um, did I kind of explain that clearly? How that, that motivational interviewing thing works? Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I remember it from my schooling, whether it was the master's or the PhD, where you're trying to figure out where people are on that change continuum. Like, are they contemplating it? Are they actually doing yeah. it? And then Same you find thing. out you're just trying to plant behaviors inside of their brain. Um, so, you know, having that dietetic, like you're, you are pretty much allowed to be then saying things because you're not just some, you don't just have some cert, like you have, you know, the full dietitian and that's got to just be an unbelievable feeling. How does working with a team doc fit in with any of that? And were there any, I don't know, puffing of chest or egos because, are you stepping on their toes now because you can make medical claims just like they can? With the team doctor? Yeah, like the team doctor being like, oh, usually they're the ones that want to make medical recommendations, but you now have the ability to. Is that, was there any, not conflicts of interest, but there are any just um, conflicts of opinion on, the, on, the, on things? No. It was, we had a great relationship with our, our sports med and, and team doctor. Um, we just, I just check in a lot, stay in the loop, 
we talked through supplements we're recommending. Um, we're very stringent um, uh, on the supplements. It's anything that we recommend must be NSF or yep. um, infirm choice. Like no, there's no gray area there. Now for uh, you, are you involved in the nutritional planning too for anybody that may be returning to play, whether it just be acute mm -hmm. or chronic? Yeah. And so that is something cool. I, I'm probably giving away some secrets here. Um, working, working with, because I know some other people are doing this, but um, that's one of the, the really good things that we were able to do when I got here is, um, and I, you don't have to be a dietitian to do this. Um, like as any of the strength coaches out here, um, if you haven't already, I would highly recommend having a high level conversation with your team doctors about creatine because our team doctors and our, our director of sports med, this is no diss on them. They were not aware of the plethora of research on creatine. They had not seen any of the information in, in, in relation to brain health. Yes. Uh, that's why I take it. Exactly. And so, um, we were able to do kind of a deal where we are able to write prescriptions for creatine for guys that, you know, are returning to play mm -hmm. you know, studies. I showed them, they hadn't seen the immobilization studies where they've done some studies where they, um, the person's not actually hurt. They just immobilize a limb and the group that takes creatine retain more muscle mass. So that's a big deal. Um, for anyone that's having a surgery. And then on top of that, um, just the, the brain aspect of concussions, um, it, it could potentially, there still needs to be more research, but it appears that it's going to help you return faster. Oh yeah, for sure. And you're not, you know, I know other schools like pe people within the the state here, and I'm not even talking like P5 schools here here in Maryland. Like there's a state school up the road that they're, you know, using creatine as well for that exact reason. And it's, you know, you find your workarounds, you find your, because there always are the ability to prescribe them when you have, you know, the work through compliance and with the team docs. Um, and that's part of being on a, you know, a high performance team and like just being able to do all of that. As the diet, uh, dietitian diet, like what, what is the proper vernacular so I don't mess any of this up? Um, you planning all the meals then too on the road? Cause how, how does that work then? Yeah. I mean, it's not just me. Um, the whole string staff, coach cause they're all going to have a heavy hand, um, and selecting the menus mm -hmm. making the choices there. Um, yeah. Taking a quick break from the show, everybody. Promises will take less than 15 seconds. Friendly reminder, go ahead, hit that subscribe button below. It helps us out, and it helps you out by being notified whenever we have new content come out. So hit that subscribe button, and with this, let's get back to the show. <clears throat> no, that's awesome. Um, let's dive into the training a little bit now because uh, you guys have been – highly talked about, about, you know, speed work during the in season and speed work, speed work. Um, for you, you know, you've been around, you know, Mizzou, Tulsa, Arkansas state, SMU use, like you've been around some fantastic football programs. Why don't you just talk about your general philosophy about training and how that's been kind of blended with, you know, this, um, this new role that you've been in here at TCU for, for two years. 
Yeah, I mean, I think our, our number one thing um, in our job as strength coaches, and Coach Kaz tells this to every single recruit we talk about, our number one job is to reduce catastrophic injuries mm. and or how catastrophic an injury could be. Injury like reduction, you know. Um, I think I saw you say something about injury prevention the other day. Like, it's not the right terminology. You know, it's it's reducing how catastrophic an injury is. Like, that's what that's what it all comes back to. Um, just being more fast. Uh, gonna assist with that? Yeah, um, that can help with hamstring health. So, if you whittle it all, it all just comes back to injury uh, reduction and reducing how catastrophic an injury is and everything that you do training wise fits under that umbrella yeah no amen to that and uh how do you see there's been a lot of you know talk out there about acl days you know high force and then pairing it in the weight room and then in in you know max velocity days um you know high high velocity maybe less ranges of motion Again, without giving away too many of, you know, secrets and things, but like just from a 10,000 foot standpoint, what have been some of the people and things that you've seen that maybe don't do it as well? Um, and then, you know, within college football as a whole, like how, how can we move the field better in the, and, you know, for the, for the coming generations? Um, yeah, I think um, with, with, with your training um, and how you organize things, um, Coach Cause does a really good job of, because he played in the NFL, you yep. know, he's been around. Dick Vermeil was the person that drafted him. He he coached for Dick Vermeil, so you know, being around some high level coaches like that, um, he's always pushing us to to see how it looks from a football coach's standpoint. Hmm. And so sometimes everything that you do isn't going to be perfectly in line with how it should look. Um, so just making sure that, that your training is the right type of training. It should be for the athlete, but also passes the smell test. <laughs> coach. So like, even though you're supposed to have full rest while you sprint, like, can you find a way to throw a med ball against the wall, do some push-ups? So it doesn't look like guys are standing around because like coach cause will press on us. Like if Bill Parcells walked out on the field, what would he say? You know, would he, would he like guys standing around? Probably not. So finding supersets like those types of things. Um, but from there, you know, figuring out a way within those constraints to do the most, scientifically sound and, and valid means of training. <clears throat> what do you think the young strength coaches, because, you know, you and I have been been doing this for some time now. What do you think some of the younger strength coaches either miss or don't understand or haven't quite yet learned? I would think that same point I was just talking about. Um, they probably think, like, speed is kind of caught on where, like, it's a big deal and uh -huh. – um, People like programming it. I, I feel like people program speed a lot more than when I was coming up. It, it seemed like there was way more emphasis on conditioning when I was coming up. But 
you have this awesome speed complex, but once again, ask yourself if you got, if you want full rest because they're sprinting and you got 20 guys standing around, how does that look? You know, yeah. I, I mean, maybe you have a good relationship with your head coach and you can sell it to them, but maybe you sold the head coach, but there's nine other full-time assistants that have been other places and seen other things. They could have worked for Nick Saban at one point. Um, and so just, just finding a way to train for the specific demands of the sport, um, but also, you know, satisfying the, the, the smell test for, for a football coach. I think that is something that, like, I, I've really learned from Coach Cause because I used to be the opposite way. I mean, if I, if I think this is what's best, then this is what we need to do, you know? Yeah, no, that's actually something that I, I had uh, a conversation with Les Spellman about where he talks like, look, if I got brought in, they want me to do this. Like, I understand that I need to give them rest. So how can I kind of play the game a little bit? And he's like, you know, we'll talk about doing some low amplitude, um, either med ball switches or um, just wall drills to even even boom booms or like just drills that are low amplitude. They're low velocity, but they do pass that, hey, they're doing something. And they actually are kind of helping reinforce and re-ingrain the pattern of what you want to see when you have them sprinting, right? Is that where you're kind of getting to? Yep, absolutely. Um, you know, within that domain of speed work, what are some of the the top drills that you think do work that, whether it be, you know, low amplitude, but things that just kind of help reinforce those good sprint kinematics for any of your, you know, high track guys? Because, I mean, you're getting some dudes at TCU now, right? Like, you're getting dudes yeah. that understand how to sprint. Like, what what is that – you know, like in, in trying to be able to keep them intrigued over that long term of their career. Yeah. So uh, I got to give a shout out here. Uh, I'll make a point to shout out all the other four full timers with TCU, but Kyle Bolton is technically our, the, the guy that's in charge of speed. Okay. Um, and what makes him unique is that he's fast, <laughs> like really fast. He, he ran four, two, nine. Oh, wow. Seahawks. Um, spent some time in uh, professional football and NFL and CFL. Um, and he's actually tight with Les Spellman. It's funny you said that. Les, oh, nice. Les came down and hung out with us for a couple of days last fall in season. Um, so uh, we'll do a lot of, um, we call them primers. So after we get done warming up, you have some plyos of some sort. And then you also, that's when we'll do um, a lot of the A-series stuff. Um, and then we also, those would also be when we're starting to work into top-end work, that's when you'll be doing dribbles. Um, and that's when you get, like, your, your prime times, your straight leg bounds, um, C-skips for height, C-skips for distance, um, all those things. And then uh, actual, like, speed work, we'll do, like, complexes of, like, loaded A-cells and then you know, maybe a unloaded agility, um, maybe a, a broad jump, something like that. Um, and that's what, like, what makes people faster, like, it's, there's so much that goes into it. Um, not to 
get stuck back talking about nutrition, but like nutrition is like one of the most underrated things to get people faster because if you can improve your body composition, I was about to say that that's where, that's where my head went with it at first too. Like it wasn't just give them the food. It's make them way less. Like, yeah. And I know like Brian Mann, well, when he was at Mizzou, he ran some stats on that and like body composition has a huge, it's like, it sounds dumb to say it, but like people miss it. Like he ran stats showing how much body comp is correlated to vertical jump. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean, especially think about big men. If I can get these big guys to cut a little bit of body fat, they're going to move better. Um, so yeah. And then like, obviously the weight room has a role. Um, how much I think we don't know sometimes, <laughs> especially like the further you get away from the ball. Um, and then also, you know, starting to get into some of these fringe theories of like skeletal frame and ISA angle. And like, that's when you're starting to kind of touch on things where you're like, if you like look into some of the stuff, Dr. Pat Davidson is talking about like with, compressing guys and if i widen out my rib angle like the isa angle is this right here if i'm widening that out is that impeding my ability to move um so yeah <clears throat> that's super interesting and one of the things that i wrote down um when you were talking about those complexes for our listeners is that might be a fantastic way to continue to keep the coaches seeing their athletes doing things while also allowing your staff to do a lot of coaching. Because if you set up three different drills, now they go do this exercise, they do this exercise, right? They, they have to, you know, get instructed. So that kind of slows it down, but it, it, mm -hmm. it seems to be a really good low hanging fruit way to give the athletes the work that they need, the rest that they need, but keep the coaches happy. No. Yeah. Absolutely. And what we do like to do, um, like we, we really like to have all eyes on everybody. So we actually will move through some of these days, like as a team, um, and just that full team being out there doing it can kind of mask that standing around concept. If you got like 20 prowlers loaded up with weight, you got guys on each side pushing it. The other guy pushes it back, then they all jog to the next station, so on and so forth. You know, that makes that makes a ton of sense. Um, what has been from, I mean, looking at the places, like you, you've seen some, some fast dudes. What have been the best ways to drive intent to get athletes to be faster? Because like you said, it is it is the new craze. Everything was conditioning back in the day. And like now it's, hey, what's your fly 10, bro? And everybody's learning how to do dribbles. What's the best way that you've seen to drive intent to keep guys engaged and be fast? Um, this is going to sound dumb, but uh, I mean, making them actually run full speed. And how do you go? About, how do you do that? How do you like that? Uh, I mean, that's more Coach Cause's job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to call the guys out and tell them they're not running fast enough. And was, that was a waste of a drill if that's, you know, uh, if they're not hauling haul ass. Um, I think Coach Bolt helps out a lot because the guys know he's fast. 
Like you can put a GPS on and still run 23 miles an hour. That's a fantastic point, right? Like, cause like you said, not only do we have to be able to train, but like, if you can, if you actually are fast, like that's gotta be an instant buy-in, right? Yeah. I think it was like, you know, when we first got here, you know, the guys, they're like, they don't know about us when we first got here. And they like one of the first times Bolt demonstrated a, some sort of speed, like I think he just demonstrated like a, I don't know what it was, like an acceleration, and the guys were like, "Whoa, <laughs> like, like that right there." I think that's the answer to your question. Hire hire Kyle Bolton and have him demonstrate stuff, and yeah. I mean, it's actually interesting you say that though, because I didn't have somebody that was you know, that fast. But I, I had uh, two of the females that were my assistants. Once they learned and, and I took them through the speed work and they were doing it with me and then they got better at it. Like the minute they were, you know, showing a drill to the guys and it looked fluid and it looked crisp, like it, it dials them in right away. They're like, oh shit, like, you know what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, I, I'm going to listen to you now. Like I was pretending to listen, but now all of a sudden, like, I'm really going to listen to what you're saying. Yeah, and I would say another thing on top of that is is to know your athletes and utilize mm. some of them as demo guys. Like um, Darius Davis, he's with the uh, shoot the the Chargers. He just got drafted by them. Mm -hmm. uh, he ran the fastest GPS time last year. I'll I'll send you the video of it after we get off. Uh, he had 23 miles an hour on a jet sweep versus SMU. It was the fastest time in college football. His 400 meter time was stupid, like elite. Like I think it was in the 46s in high school. Mm -hmm. um, and so utilizing a guy like Darius Davis to demo drills. Mm -hmm. So I, I talked about bullet demoing, but a lot of times we, we, we get the tracksters. And even furthermore, we'll have some, some freaky big men and having them like demonstrate like really great uh ace switches and stuff like that can get guys locked in because then the skill guys are like well shit like do i look that good is that like 320 pound dude mm -hmm. what have been the biggest things that you've seen to build you know one of the favorite words in football is you know teamwork and toughness and culture and all those different buzzwords to you and, and just the life that you've seen at Mizzou. And you talked about how great that staff was. And, you know, being brought in in these new roles. Like, how have the best teams that you've been around, what are some of the common denominators for success? Um, I, I mean, I, it's all about culture. And I know that that's, like, stereotypical. Um, but... I think, like, if you work in college football long enough, because I used to, like, hear culture and be like, yeah, whatever. It's about talent and it's about training. Um, but I found that, like, no matter what college football program I was a part of, deep down inside I knew how successful that team could be. And, like, you try to lie to yourself and, and tell yourself, but, you know, there's – been teams and seasons I was a part of that deep down inside I knew that we were going to underperform because um, the culture wasn't right. Um, so sports psychology is is a huge deal mm. with us, you know. Mm -hmm. um, 
Coach Kaz, like me, was a GA for Pat Ivy. Um, so oh, we wow. come from, you know, we had Dr. Rick McGuire. He was the head track coach at Mizzou, but he was also one of our instructors. And when he retired as the track coach, he moved on and established the sports psychology department um, with Mizzou Athletics. And so uh, sports psychology is like, it, like that's, a, that's a big part of it and routinely educating the guys on it. Um, like nutrition and sports psych education are, that's part of our culture at TCU. Um, I'm almost doing nutrition education, especially early in the summer, it's like every single day. And as we get further along in the summer, I do less education and Coach Kaz will dip in and do more sports psych education. Um, and then the sports site just stays there, like all in season, um, really emphasizing, you know, th there's a lot of different concepts you can get into with sports site from like being able to focus, you know, but the, the bottom, the, the initial foundation is what is your why? Mm. What's your motivation? Like that's the bottom of our sports site pyramid. If you don't know your motivation, at the top is pain and please do not misquote me. I, I understand that training does not build mental toughness, but having new, the sports psych education and the ability to tap into that can build mental toughness during tough training, you know? So, anything worth having comes at a certain level of discomfort. Mm -hmm. If you don't know your motivation, you're not going to be able to go through the pain and discomfort to get something. So something that you said right there made me think you were, as you guys say, they're the first and the only that is a dietitian. That's, you know, also a strength coach. Do you, I, and I, I know, coach, I just want to stop you right there. If there's someone else doing my job, yeah, please. Let us know. Like, there's, we're not trying to. I know that there might be some people in the NFL, but to my knowledge, there's no one else in college football doing it. So Correct. And and so I wasn't even trying to um, only highlight that. What I was trying to say is whether it's you and three, four other people, it's not the norm. Um, you know, rewind 10 years. I don't think most people thought that that would be the case. Like, they didn't. it, it doesn't. Now what I'm saying is let's fast forward five, five ten years. Sticking with what you said about sports psychology, like, do you see a world where somebody could be a psychologist? They have a, an actual background in it and they're a strength and conditioning coach. Just going back to what we talked about with you having a good hand in nutrition and how often you're around the guys. Imagine that being a strength coach who has that background and can spot things and can be there. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where I mean, that's uh, to a degree what Pat Ivey does. His really in sports psychology um that's freaking cool in a different role now um but yeah going back to what i talked about initially like continuing education was just part of the culture at mizzou mm -hmm. and i mean like andrew paul taught me this he's the the guy i talked about the head performance coach with the oklahoma city thunder he's a dpt and a certified strength coach he was the one that really pushed me to stay in dietetic school. So any sort of dual role, I think is the future of, of performance. And that's, it's really, but the cool thing is there's, 
there's a lot of niches you can find. Like you don't have to go to dietetic school. You know, you might, you might really be interested in sports psychology and you pursue that. Um, you know, there's physical therapy, DPT, um, or someone like you, uh, I know you have a PhD. It's, it's in like human health and human performance is kind of like global, right? Even something like that, having, you know, that, that credential, you know, that's interesting. Cause that's something that I never even thought of. Like somebody that has the, you know, background and knowledge in clinical psychology and like, Hey, this is how, like, cause you said there, there's bonding when you do difficult things as a team and there's, you know, the, the general ability to do something discomfortable, um, to then apply it later on in your life. And then having somebody that is an expert in that domain while working in the physical domain, that just seems like a, uh, kind of a no brainer. Um, right. but the problem is if you do that and then now you go and get a job that only pays $40,000 a year, you can't afford, <laughs> you can't afford to not get hired there. No, exactly. Um, Listen, I appreciate it. You know, we're coming up on an hour already. Uh, the the last question that we kind of have all of our our guests on is, what's kind of your soapbox uh, opportunity to kind of tell the world about strength and conditioning, things where you see the field going, where you wish it would go. What what's kind of your soapbox moment or soapbox statement to to the world of SNC? Man, I, I don't know. That's tough. Um, I feel like I hit on a lot of that already um, in terms of uh, like supplementation and, and buying into supplementing um, the right supplements, obviously. Um, shoot. Um, I guess one thing we could hit on um, be our discussion we had the other day about uh, 300s, right? No, go ahead. I was actually just reading um, what's his face's book, the the book Win, talking about you know like um, cardiac output type work. Like, go ahead and and, and fill in on the the conversation we were having. Yeah. So um, I would say that like sometimes you need to look at um, what Coach Kaz does a good job of um, saying all the time is that I don't want to be good at the drill. I want to get the benefit of the drill. Ooh. Okay. And so when you're looking at your selection of exercises or conditioning work or speed work, I think sometimes we get lost in being too specific and coming back to like our foundation that we know that there's central and peripheral adaptations. Central to, and peripheral fatigue too. Yeah. Yep. Central and peripheral fatigue. And so that's where we will three, run 300s. Not all year, not as a conditioning test. It's more as like tempo work, but I mean, we'll push the pace because in our opinion, there are central and peripheral adaptations you can get from that. From a central standpoint, um, if you like go by the book of like Joel Jameson stuff, which I've never really been able to understand what the difference between cardiac power and lactic power intervals are they seem like the same thing to me right. um but th those do jack your heart rate up you know that's his cardiac power intervals he says like a good full speed 300 to me is a cardiac power interval um you're jacking your heart rate up centrally that adaptation is 
you're working heart rate contractility. From a peripheral standpoint, um, you're working at buffering, okay? Being able to buffer those metabolic byproducts, working your enzymes, you know, glycolytic and oxidative enzymes, um, training those things, just dealing with heat. You know, heat's a threat to the body. So getting those hamstring and calves hot, doing 300s. Um, and like I said, that's not to say that we're gonna do 300s year round. It's something we do at the beginning. You know, as we get closer to camp, obviously you're gonna do more alactic capacity work. Um, but the other point I'll make on that, um, I guess this can kind of be my soapbox, but uh, <laughs> energy systems. So we've moved past the point where we say it's all or nothing, right? Now, now we're, now we've moved past, we're talking about the dimmer switch where, you know, it's everything, all the energy work, energy systems work at the same time. However, um, and I, I don't quite know why this hasn't caught on yet, but all our original research on energy systems was limited by time and how we were able to measure things. So the whole, you know, 10 seconds is ATP or phosphocreatine, then 20 to 30 is um, glycolytic, and then you have um, aerobic, like three minutes plus. That was all limited on our ability to measure right we were we were measuring it in seconds but now we, we have research from a lot of it came from cancer cell research um when you look at things from a millisecond standpoint everything's aerobic everything's glycolytic everything's alactic um and so i think we we kind of like got obsessed with saying football is alactic or aerobic you either sprint or you do tempo runs but, and this is what, like, it's crazy to me that, like, this isn't talked about more. Um, everything's glycolytic. There's something that they found in cancer cell research called the glycogen shunt pathway. And, you know, glycogen, we think of it like highly branched um, carbohydrates. And there's something called the glycogen, glycogen, glycogen shunt that is literally ripping off tiny pieces of glycogen to meet your energy demands in milliseconds. So this whole 10 seconds and then ATP <laughs> drops down, it's literally going like this, right? You're, you're constantly replenishing ATP, replenishing glycogen, the aerobics turning on, the aerobics turning off, everything's aerobic, everything's glycolytic, everything's alactic. Um, that's a, I think that's a actually very interesting point that you brought that up because yes, we've, you know, we've completely learned that now, but I think even within the sport of football, there's differences where it's not just a lactic aerobic because take an offensive lineman, for example, they're in a lactic bath the whole time. Like you can't, they don't come off the field. Now you're maybe your deep threat wide receiver maybe your defensive back that doesn't do as much on a couple inside run, like run plays that get tackled short. 
But your O-line, like, they're in complete lactic bath the whole time, no? Yeah. Because it's not, like, you can't tell a 300-pound lineman that just, you know, moved somebody, they got up off the ground, they had to go back to the huddle, they went to the line. Like, they're kind of in a lactic bath the whole time, now that you talk about it. Correct. Um, and, yeah, like, like to our point is that they're in a lactic, yeah, like, the, the, the glycolytic system is working the whole time. Um, yeah, I would highly recommend, it's like Shulman. Look, Google, like, glycogen shunt pathway. It's, it's some pretty interesting stuff. Um, and the other piece to that, uh, I talked to you about and I, you know, I, stealing everything. That's, that's what a good strength coach does. Any coach steals. <laughs> I stole this from Dr. Pat Davidson is he talks about training is like a stew or making a soup. And if you don't throw in some lactic bath stuff every, every once in a while, it's a bland stew. So think about 300s or some sort of kind of more lactic, quote unquote lactic, because I'm saying the opposite, everything is everything, um, is like adding spice to that, to that stew. And like, and some people will hate to hear this, that like, because people want to say that you want to do like, you want to be by the book, you want to do what's best and football's alactic aerobic. There's some guys that aren't going to respect you as a football guy if you don't break their ass off a little bit. Hmm. It's an interesting thought. We're going to leave you all on that note. We're going to let you uh, have to digest that all, and we will be back next week with another episode. So appreciate you, brother. We've been going for uh, a little over an hour. So you enjoy the rest of your day, and uh, have a good weekend, man.